Thank you, Jim, for that ministry of music. How appropriate. Truth unchanged. Down through eternity. We are in the book of Jude, and we've been emphasizing these weeks the need to contend for the faith. Jude 1.3 Beloved, while I was making every effort, every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. But there is one faith, there is one body of truth that was delivered. It came from God for all times, for all people. And we're to stand up and we are to contend for that faith. This morning, we want to look at what contending for that faith looks like. What kind of people ought we to be? How are we to respond to those who do not fully or completely hold to the faith? What should it look like? Well, I would say to you this morning that our response needs to be consistent and yet varied. Consistent and yet varied. There, there is to be, at one and the same time, a unified response to all who demonstrate unbelief. And at the same time, there is to be a difference in the way in which we respond to individuals in their un- un- unbelief. Our response needs to be consistent, for it is to always be one of mercy, one of pity, one of compassion, one of genuine concern. That should be true for each and every person that we come in contact with. But at the same time, our response needs to be varied and appropriate to the situation. What do I mean by that? Why does it need to be varied Appropriate to the situation. Answer, because unbelief is manifested in various degrees. And because unbelief is manifested in various degrees, we need to exercise a great deal of discernment in the way in which we respond to unbelief. In our text, we're going to look at three different degrees, I'm going to refer to them as, of unbelief. Three different kinds of unbelief, if you will, each one of which needs to be contended with, each one that needs to be addressed, but needs to be addressed in a different way. First, we're to have pity upon believers, that is, people who are born again, and yet who evidence a measure of unbelief. Our text this morning is verses 22 and 23 of Jude. And Jude 22 says, Have mercy on some who are doubting. Belief is not an all or nothing proposition in the word of God. Faith isn't something that either you have or don't have, but is often had, if you will, in varying degrees. One classic example to illustrate this is of a man whose son is demon-possessed. And this demon has been having horrific effects upon this child. He's thrown himself into the fire. He's been writhing on the uh, ground in pain. All kinds of things. 
And it says in the book of Mark, and they brought the boy to him that is Jesus. And when he saw him, he immediately, the spirit uh, threw him into a convulsion, falling to the ground, began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us, have mercy on us, and help us. Now, the verses that lead into this are the words of Jesus when he said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So he just referred to this unbelieving generation. Bring him to me. And this man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus' response is, he said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Yes, I can. And everything is possible to the one who believes. To which the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help mine unbelief. I do believe, help mine unbelief. That is the tension that this first example gives us in the book of Jude. There are people who believe and yet still need to believe more. And quite frankly, I would say that probably many of us find ourselves in that situation from time to time. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. But I still have doubts. I still have uncertainties. I still have difficulties. People who are struggling with unbelief are to be pitied. Verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. And I keep using as a synonym for mercy, pity. It's compassion. It's care. It's concern. To be a doubter is not the ideal situation to be in. I think sometimes we escalate doubt to a positive when it's a negative. In other words, sometimes people will say, you know, it's good when people doubt, when, when people need to be reassured. Well, there's a process that one goes through that may evidently and eventually prove to be helpful in its outcome. But the doubt itself isn't particularly good. And that's why it says that such people are to be pitied, not praised, not looked up to, not admired, but pitied. It is not a good state to be in, a state of doubt. Why is that so? Well, because it's a miserable condition to be in. A person who doubts in this text, we might literally uh, translate as a people who are torn. They are conflicted. They have antithetical thoughts going through their mind all at the same time. Such as this man who wants his son to be healed and brings him to Jesus in order for Jesus to heal him and at the, sec- second, and at the same time wonders if Jesus really can. 
has enough faith to take him, but wonders if it's really going to mean anything, if it's really going to achieve anything. So many times it is that we have faith to pray, but yet, in the back of our minds, we wonder, but is that prayer really going to be effectual? Is that prayer really going to do anything? Is that really going to help this situation? We know what we ought to do, but we don't find the solace and comfort in doing it. And we're torn. And many times we recognize that we're torn. And we tell ourselves we shouldn't feel that way. We shouldn't act that way. We shouldn't think that way. But yet we do. And it's a pitiful state to be in. A scriptural example of one who doubts is found in Romans chapter 14. You don't need to turn there, but it says this. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. And then it uses the example of eating meat offered to idols. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So here is a person, probably grew up observing the dietary laws of the Old Testament. A devout Jew who never would eat anything that was quote-unquote defiled. Anything that would go against the instructions of the Old Testament. This person is instructed by Paul and others that there is nothing unclean in and of itself, and you're free to eat that, which formerly they would not. So on the one hand, they know the teaching. that there's nothing wrong with eating this. And at the same time, inwardly, they're saying to themselves, I never ate this stuff. And it was always wrong all through my childhood, and now it becomes right. And though they know what is said, inwardly, they're not convinced of it. And the scripture says, and so they eat because they know intellectually it's okay. Inwardly, they don't think it's right. And it talks about them as doubting, as doubting, uncertainty, torn. Torn, intellectually, with emotionally, what one feels. We find that oftentimes Christians get conflicting advice. They hear different things from different preachers. You turn the radio on in the afternoon and hear something that's quite different from what you heard from the pulpit this morning. And as a result, people get mixed up. They get confused. They have questions about doctrines. Eternal security, perseverance of the saints, election, non-election, free will, predestination. And people have doubts. They have uncertainty. They have questions. What is the faith? What is it that I really am to believe? And they read books. And they soon find that five theologians all have different opinions. And it comes down to the place then, when the scripture says, contend for the faith, well, How do I do that when I'm not sure what the faith is that I'm to contend for? When I'm not sure what doctrine is that I'm to believe or not believe? What I'm to support or not support? Well, the scripture says that's a pitiful state to be in. That's a sorry state of affairs. We should know. But the the point is that this particular context is contending for the faith. How should you respond to such a person? Well, you're to have pity upon them. You're to have compassion upon them. Such people 
ought to be received with a great deal of care. We should be long-suffering in dealing with those people that doubt. We need to be patient. We need to be clear. We need to be understanding. And we need to set a good example. And negatively, negatively, what we are not to be is argumentative. Romans 14.1 Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. Don't just argue over these things. Don't make it an intellectual exercise. Don't make it a debate. Don't make it about pride. Don't make it about being right. Make it about the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And have a spirit of compassion in dealing with those that have doubts. We want to move quickly to the second realm. And that is, we are to save the unbeliever who is close to exercising faith. I've chosen these words carefully. Let me say it again. We are to save the unbeliever who is close to exercising faith. Notice verse 23. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Save others. We find in this text that it is our duty, it is our responsibility to save people. It is an imperative. Save others. Now, how does this square, if you will, with our understanding of election and our understanding of God's providence? Well, let me unpack that for you, because there are a lot of misunderstandings about election. And we certainly want to set it straight as we think about this particular text. First, we're to be on a seek and rescue mission for the unbeliever who is reachable for the sake of the gospel. In this verse, we find that the onus or responsibility is upon us to save people. And we can quickly ask the question, well, how can we save people? Only God can save people would be a good theological response. Well, that's true. Only God can save people. But how does God save people? Through the instrumentality of his people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they be saved? So God saves people through us. The idea that you can just sit back and a sovereign God is simply going to save people is as erroneous <clears throat> as the doctrine to, to reject uh, election is. God works through us and we must be his instrument. We are to be on a seek and rescue mission. So let's begin with an illustration. And then I will explain its elements. As I say, we're to be on a, a seek and rescue mission. Let's, let's picture a beach. And let's picture the lifeguard chair. And the lifeguard sitting in the chair. And we've got the umbrella and all that good stuff. 
And we know that that lifeguard is to be on the alert. He's not to be leaning over and talking with a bunch of people who are at the, at the uh, side here. But, but that lifeguard is to be on the alert. Maybe have pair of binoculars in their hands if they are at the ocean or something like that. And they're to be vigilant. They're to be on the outlook for people who are in need that they can rescue. People who are in need that they can go out and pull to safety. That's the imagery here, snatching them out of the fire. We are to look for people that we can rescue. So, who are those people? What do they look like, these rescuable people, if you will? Well, we have just said that it requires the Spirit of God to bring someone to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3.11, there is none one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So, if you see someone that appears to be seeking after God, it is because God is at work in them. There is a rescuable individual. If you see someone, the scripture says no one understands. If you see someone who begins to understand these truths and begins to to question these truths in a positive way, there is a rescuable person. There is a person that the Spirit of God is at work in. We are to be looking for any signs. Of the Spirit of God at work in an individual. And when we see that, we should be on the sands of the beaches. We should be running at full tilt, ready to jump into the ocean. And pull that person out. For they are rescuable. And it's our responsibility to rescue them. People are asking good questions. People are asking sincere questions. People who enjoy being around God's people. These are people who are beginning to question their doubts. They are on the opposite side of the fence. The first group that we looked at are believers who sometimes question their faith. Now we are looking at unbelievers who now are beginning to question their unbelief. They're beginning to question their Surety that there is no God. Well, maybe there is a God. They begin to wonder. Maybe there is a life after death. And maybe there is a heaven. And maybe there is a hell. And they're willing to engage to a degree a subject such as that. Pounce on it. Jump on it. Rescue that individual from their lost condition. The second thing that I want to emphasize is that the imagery of saving them is snatching them out of the fire. One of the reasons why it is so difficult to come up with a good illustration, and I have been laboring in the way in which I use words, is because I didn't refer to a person as drowning. Because this person is drowned. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're not dying. They're dead. So, how do you find a dead person in the ocean raising their hand? Well, you don't. 
And so the illustration fails at that point. That's why I use the term rescuable. Because here is the Spirit of God who's beginning to work in the life of this individual. The Spirit of God who's beginning to breathe life into a dead body. We need to come along and work with the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's purpose and God's end. The imagery is snatching them out of a fire. Verse 23. Snatching them out of the fire. The fire is a fire of judgment. Jude 1, verse 7. In undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The imagery is, here is eternal fire. Here is this person's end. Here is this person's situation. They are lost. And we are to take them and to pluck them out. Pull them out. Snatch them out. Take them out of their lost state and bring them into a state in which now they are saved. Delivered from the power and consequence of sin and into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. What is important to realize is these are not people who are teetering on the brink. There is no in-between. There is no... Neutralized zone. Either you're saved or you're lost. There's nothing in between. The first group are people who are saved. And they sometimes have doubts. The second people who are people that are lost. And sometimes have questions about, about the truth. And are somewhat open to it. But the point is they are in fact lost. And don't lose sight of that fact this morning. And that is always a concern I have as I look out over our congregation. Especially because I look at this congregation and pretty much the same people Sunday after Sunday. You're very faithful. You're here. You're preaching the word. You're you're anxious to hear the word of God. As I look out of the congregation, some of you I know very, very well. Others I don't know very well. But it is important what I know. It's important what you know. And it's important what you know about yourself. And that is, have you ever personally made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever gotten to the place where you have said, yes, it's true, I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. I know that that forgiveness only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died to deliver me from my sin. And I want to be delivered from my sin and its consequences. And if that's you this morning, my question is, have you ever acted upon it? Because you can sit here and have heard that time and time again and feel comfortable with it. And maybe even think, you know, sometime down the road, I I probably will accept Christ as my Savior. Maybe when I get older or situation change. You know, that's something I see myself doing sometime. I'm just here to tell you this morning, if that's you, you're not in a neutral position. You're lost. You're lost. You're lost until you come to place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are that person, 
But sitting here this morning and saying, you know, I have some interest. After all, I come and I and I but, but I'm just not sure this morning. I'm not I'm not absolutely 100 percent convinced. I want to say to you, number one, that that is the spirit of God at work in your life. That's the grace of God that is beginning to open your heart and mind to the gospel. And I say to you this morning, open wide the floodgates and let him come in. Acknowledge what you know to be true to a measure. Acknowledge what you know to be true to a degree. You say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need for forgiveness. And yes, it's true that that only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then exercise that faith today. Then call upon him today. Be saved today. And so I'm just going to offer to you and extend to you a plea. As I sit in my life chair and as I look out over the sea of this congregation, I simply ask, do I see a hand this morning of someone that says, that's me, I need to be saved? I'm not going to ask you to close your hands. I'm not asking you to pray. I'm just going to say to you, will you raise your hand today and say, I need a Savior? If that's you, I plead with you. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the faith. That's the gospel. I'm not going to make this long and drawn out. Simply, this morning, if you want to receive Christ, you say, would you raise your hand so I can see it this morning quickly and clearly? Anyone at all? Let's move to the third point. The third point. We're to have pity coupled with fear for the unbeliever who is entrenched in his unbelief. Notice the third category, verse 23. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I'm going to work through Carefully, three things that are found in this last part of this verse. First, we are to have pity upon this unbeliever. This unbeliever who is going to ultimately experience judgment. Jesus had compassion, pity on the unbeliever. Jesus, as he was entering Jerusalem, said these words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And stones those that sent to her. See, this third group are people who are entrenched in their unbelief. Maybe I didn't say that. The third, we are to have pity coupled with fear for the unbeliever who is entrenched in his unbelief. These are people who are steadfastly opposed to the things of God. They're not indifferent. They're not somewhat open. They're not sitting in the church on Sunday morning. These are people who are just out and out opposed to anything that has a smack of religion. Those individuals who stand in opposition, the individuals who Jesus refers to as who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to them. Jesus said how often. I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. How often I wanted to protect you as a hen protects her her children, but you would have nothing to do with it. Such people 
we are to have fear for. We are to fear for the unbeliever. The non-believer, this individual who is just entrenched in their unbelief, has no fear. Look at verse 12. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. Without fear. They, they don't have fear. We are to fear in their stead. Paul writes to the Galatians and says, I fear for you that perhaps I labored over you in vain. I fear for you that you are lost. We are to fear for those who are in a lost condition. One of the aspects of the faith that we need to contend for that that I spoke of a number of weeks ago is the reality of hell. And I mentioned a book that's come out and is questioning the reality of hell. It's important that we understand that hell is real. And that we fear for those who place no faith in it. We fear for their end. We fear for what it's going to mean in their lives. Jesus, when he looked over Jerusalem, he wept over it and said this. When he approached, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which made for your peace, but how they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come when you... Your enemies will throw up a bank before you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Jesus looks down and sees what's going to be the end of the city, and he weeps as he looks at their end. We should never get to the place where we don't weep over the lost condition of mankind. We should not be indifferent to it. We should not be callous to it. We should be merciful. We should have compassion upon the most grievous, obstinate, cantankerous unbeliever that we would ever come in contact with. We are to be pitying them and we are to be gracious to them. We are to fear in their stead. At the same time, we are showing compassion and fear. We are to be hating the polluted garment. Look at verse 23. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Hating is a participle in the Greek. And there are five different ways in which participles are used. I think this is a temporal participle, which simply means this. A temporal participle is a participle that is held in conjunction at the same time as the main verb. Which means, all at the same time, while you have compassion and you have, have uh, fear, you're also being showing a degree of hatred. But a hatred of what is important to see. Notice at the end of the verse, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, what does that mean? The garment polluted by the flesh. I'm going to use two illustrations this morning. 
One, a contemporary one, because I think it's the most easily understood, and then a biblical one because it's the most accurate. So first, a contemporary one. Let's talk about a person who smokes. Not because I think a person who smokes is lost. I don't believe that by any means. I'm not saying that. I'm just using it as an illustration this morning. A person who smokes. The effects of that smoke affects even their, their garments. You can smell it on them. Uh, you, if you get a motel room, you can ask for a smoking or non-smoking room. Because if you go into a smoker's room, you smell it. A few years ago, I bought a car, a used car, that uh, was owned by a smoker. And uh, I bought it because I got it for a good price. And I noticed the smell. And I thought, well, you know, that'll go away over time. Well, I had the car for four years. It never went away. I tried everything. I tried to put all kinds of perfumes. I put everything in this. But man, you put that car in the sunlight and the daylight today, the sun beating down in that car, you opened that car and you smelled it. It was, it was polluted by the smoke. It was polluted by the smoke. And the second thing is we have come to understand the dangers of secondhand smoke. We've come to realize now that that there are difficulties, even if you don't smoke, if you're just always around a person who smokes, that you've taken a certain amount of that in your lungs, and it can be difficult for you. We are to understand and fear the effects of entrenched unbelief. Understand and fear the effects of entrenched unbelief. Now, let me look with you at a biblical example. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. Leviticus 13.45. Here, unbelief and sin is pictured as a person having leprosy. Leviticus 13, starting at verse 45. Leviticus 13:45. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean, he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. When a garment has a mark of leprosy in it, whether it is a wool garment or a linen garment, then it talks about all the ways to figure out if it's leprosy or not. Then you get down to verse 52. So he shall burn the garment, whether the warp or the wolf in wool or in linen or any article of leather in which the mark occurs, for it is a leprous malignancy, it shall be burned in the fire. So the polluted garment actually in our text, is the leprous garment. The leprous garment. The person who has leprosy can actually have that disease manifested in his clothes. We know about germs. We know about contagions. And leprosy was a highly contagious disease. 
in the Old Testament. And there was great fear, not just for the leper, but for his clothes. And so those clothes were to be burned. Those clothes were to be handled very carefully. You should be afraid of those clothes. Because they carry the disease with it. That's the actual picture that's in verse 23. We shouldn't hate the leper. We shouldn't hate the leper. We should have mercy and compassion on him. But man, at the same time that we're having mercy and compassion on the leper, we ought to be afraid. Afraid of handling his clothes. Lest that leprosy spread. And one of the reasons we need to stand in contention for the faith is so that the entrenched unbelief of non-believers doesn't spread wildfire through the congregation, through the community, and through the world. Korah, if you remember, that rebellion was a contagion. What started in Korah's life spread to four others. And then we noticed how it spread to 250 princes. And then it spread to the congregation. And a plague broke out. And thousands of people died because it wasn't dealt with. We can't afford to let unbelief go without being confronted. We can't let false teaching go without making it right. We need to stand against it. We need to say this is wrong because it's tremendously dangerous. It costs the lives of many. One of the most written about and difficult issues in the life of John Calvin has to do with a a certain individual who came to Geneva by the name of Servetus. And Servetus opposed adamantly, vehemently, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Servetus was warned repeatedly about the falsehood that he was spreading. Eventually, Servetus was imprisoned because of the falsehood that he was spreading. And eventually, he was put to death because of the falsehood that he was spreading. Many have looked at that as being one of the great outlandish things that John Calvin ever did. Even in his own lifetime, it was highly questioned as to why he would do such a thing. And John Calvin's response was, if we are going to take the physical life of a man who takes the physical life of another, shouldn't we take the physical life of one who takes the eternal life of another? That's hard for us to comprehend today. That's hard for us to understand. We live in such a tolerant time and and age where we celebrate differences of opinion. People, we need to exercise a lot of discernment because there's a range of disbelief. 
There is good tensioned unbelief. There is good tension where, where people are reading their Bibles and they sincerely want to understand and they can't put it all together. And sometimes you hear them say things that just aren't quite right. And they believe things that aren't quite right. We should have compassion. We should be long patient. We should be long suffering. We should be gentle and not argumentative. And as we contend for the faith, we as kindly and as lovingly and as patiently and as long as it takes to say to people, but you know, this is really what the Word of God says. This is what we need to believe. We need to recognize that there are people who have been untaught. Never heard the gospel. Or maybe they heard the gospel as a child, but never responded to it. And they grow up. They're not serial killers. They're not people that are out to burn down churches. And they have no axe to grind against Christians. But they've never come to place faith or trust in Jesus Christ. We should have pity on such people. And we should go to whatever extent necessary to reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Plucking them right out of the fire. Snatching them out of their lost condition. Bringing them to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Always scanning, always looking for that person. Any ray of hope. Any demonstration that the Spirit of God is at work in their life. And fan that flame until it burns brightly. Giving them things to read. Challenge them, them in a loving way to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We need to realize that there are those group of people out there. But brothers and sisters, we also need to know there's a group of people over here who want to kill the prophets, who want to silence the truth, who are tremendously opposed to the things of God. And they need to be met head on. Still having a love and compassion for them. But having a tremendous fear of what is going to happen if that is left unchecked. If that leprosy is allowed to spread. If that false doctrine is allowed to continue to be preached. The way it's going to have an effect on us all. And we have to hate that garment. And stand against it. And burn it. We just can't have one response. We have to have an informed response. We have to have a discerning response. We need to know the person that we are responding to. It's not particularly helpful. To refer to our brothers and sisters in Christ as heretics. We have 
many doctrines in our church that we hold and we hold to them firmly and we believe them to be the truth of the Word of God. Not every Christian believes all that we believe. Well, we're to have pity. We're to have compassion. We're not to be argumentative. We're to be able to make a distinction between one who believes and one who doesn't. And just because somebody doesn't dot every I and cross every T mean that we have to be in their face and thumping the Bible at them. Not that we don't think all these things are important. But to be gentle and long-suffering and gracious. We need to realize that we have friends and relatives, nice people, quote-unquote good people, that have never exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say with a heavy heart they're lost. I say that with no, no joy or gladness. I say it with a heavy heart, but I say it because it's important that we know that they're lost so that we snatch them out. So we don't become complacent. So that we don't just let it go by. It's our duty to rescue these people. Look for people that we can rescue. Day camp. Look for people that can be rescued. People who are in a lost condition who can come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the entrenched one, even the one who's entrenched in their rebellion, who stones the prophets, even the chorus, we should have compassion on them, fearing their end, and fearing what, if left unchecked, their leprosy can do to a church, to a community, and to a world. And we stand against it. Because we want to preserve our church, our community, and our world. We are to contend for the faith. May God give us the wisdom and discretion to contend appropriately in every given circumstance. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for your grace and goodness. And I trust that you would help us, O God, as we seek to contend for the faith. Help us to be a wise and discerning people. And notice how different that is in dealing with a brother and dealing with a non-believer and dealing with one who is just entrenched in their opposition to the things of God. Lord, help us, we pray, in these endeavors. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.